Hi everyone and welcome to Riskologists. This podcast is brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Pat Bradshaw. Optimize are thrilled to host this podcast series where we'll be speaking with some of risk management's most respected and esteemed thought leaders from across the UK and beyond. Throughout this series, we'll be exploring our guests' journey within risk management, as well as delving into their unique insights and invaluable first-hand experiences around some of the industry's most pressing topics. Our goal? To create a platform in which ideas and thoughts can be shared in order to inspire and educate our audience and to ultimately give back to the risk management community across the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Riskologists. As always, I'm your host, Pat Bradshaw, and today, absolutely delighted to be joined by Dan Patterson. So, Dan, thanks very much for coming on. Oh, you're very, very welcome. I'm excited to spend uh, some time with you today. So this is going to be good. <laughs> Excellent. At this point, I'd normally ask what your podcast game is like, um, but I've already had the pleasure of listening to a couple of, uh, a couple of things that you've been involved in previously, so I don't think you should be too far out of your comfort zone. <laughs> well, um, like I say, Dan, as, as always do in these, um, in these episodes, I think a really good place to start is a bit of a journey to date, really. So I guess how you got into risk management as a career and project management, um, a little bit of a timeline of your career, some highlights up to what you're doing today as we speak. So yeah, fire away. All right. My goodness, Pat. So where do I start? Well, um, let, let's start in the sequential order. So um, this is a little bit random, but... Uh, Ever since I've been a, a young child, I've always had a, a pet peeve for, for being late. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, so I think my, uh, my professional career in uh, scheduling and uh, forecasting stems from, uh, from, uh, from, from literally, yeah, just, 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 just <laughs> this hatred for uh, anything late. So, yeah, um, so, yeah I mean, um, you know, I, uh, I, I spent way too many years at uh, university, University of Nottingham as both uh, undergrad and postgrad. And almost by chance off the back of that experience, um, I was working for an engineering company in uh, Northern England in my early twenties. And I had uh, what I thought was a really exciting, interesting concept for building a uh, planning software product. So I went to my boss and, uh, you know, did, did an informal pitch and said, hey, I really think we should build this thing. And it was so it's so funny, Pat, I remember it to this day. He turned around and said, well, what if it doesn't work? And I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was young, I was energetic and I was like, oh my gosh, well, what if it does work? So, uh, so I wrote a white paper, submitted it to a conference in uh, the United States and presented the white paper and actually got headhunted at that conference in the mid 1990s Wow. So, uh, yeah, so literally quit my job in the UK, um, had one suitcase to my name, jumped on a plane and uh, emigrated to uh, Houston, Texas, of all places in, oh, wow. in the mid 90s. So, uh, yeah, so that was really the start of my um, sort of branching off on my own. Um, and then following that, gosh, I mean, you know, I've spent the last 20 years um, building organizations. I founded three software companies. Uh, very specifically in the uh, project scheduling and project planning space. Um, and, you know, the, the, the first of those three companies focused on risk, which was, which was interesting, Pat, because at the time, risk management, risk analysis was, was in its sort of early, uh, early form with regards to commercial software products. So, um, you know, in many ways, we spent more time evangelizing and trying to demystify the science of risk management we did actually building software yeah. um, but uh, that, that was really exciting and I think some great things came of that you know accelerate 20 years forward and, and you know it's almost the exception these days for a project not to undertake some form of risk analysis so that then led me to uh, my second organization which was called Acumen and Acumen was was while it was tied to risk analysis was really more looking at the quality of project schedules. So, uh, you know, think of it as taking your schedule to the doctor and the doctor would critique the health of the schedule. And um, again, that was a really interesting journey for me because, you know, it absolutely without a doubt made a huge impact on our industry in terms of helping scheduling. But just from a, a personal journey perspective, what I learned from that was 
You know, if you build a tool that effectively critiques something or someone, generally as humans, we don't like being told that we're not perfect. And so commercially in the early days, that product was actually a bit of a flop because the, the software would come back and lots of red lights and it would ding you and tell you how terrible you were. Um, so, so I learned something very valuable during those times in that you can still critique and um, validate something. But if you, if, you, if you combine those critiques into, for example, a score, then again, I think as humans, we actually start to, you know, we're naturally competitive. We want to improve on our goodness and our scores. And so we developed a, a concept called the schedule index, which was a zero to hundred percent score on the quality of schedules. Yeah. And um, that was massively valuable. And again, I think it was a really good life lesson for me. And then more recently, again, you know, very much within the, the, the science of, uh, project scheduling and improving the discipline of project scheduling. I founded an organization called Basis, and Basis was very simple in that it would take historical prior project information. So it would take Microsoft Project, Primavera schedules, and it would store them in a knowledge library. And then we developed an AI, uh, what we call an inference engine, that would go off and mine that historical information and come back and make suggestions to planners and schedulers when building new plans and and that that well while you, you say wow pat that, that was another interesting uh, journey because it was absolutely from a, a, a sort of a mathematical and a software perspective you know it was fantastic it was very very clever but again from a from a human adoption perspective it was more bleeding edge than cutting edge and in some ways i think it was a little bit uh, before it before its time and and so you know, I think looking back, while it was a very valuable and still is a very valuable tool, um, the concept of making humans comfortable, you know, as, as computing power gets more and more powerful and, and, you know, whether it's AI or other emerging techniques, um, I think it's really important as we continue to build solutions that we ensure that humans are comfortable. You know, at the end of the day, planners, schedulers, cost estimators, risk analysts, um, they're all experts in their domain, and really a, a computer should assist with that expertise and not challenge that expertise, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that, so that was sort of a convoluted uh, walkthrough of my, uh, my journey to date over the last 20 plus years in, in the project controls, project planning, risk analysis space, yeah. and um, I'm still in the thick of it today, and I, we're probably get into that later on in this uh, session i'm guessing we certainly will yeah sorry dan i forgot to mention earlier we're um we've only had a couple of guests that aren't on uh, gmt time zone i think we've had someone from um someone from canada and we had a guest over in the uae as well so i think we're our first guest over in the states um it's scottsdale oh, arizona you're in now isn't it correct yes so amazing. uh yes well amazing. well amazingly hot amazingly hot in the summer and um just very hot in the winter is probably the best way to describe Scottsdale. It's hot all the time in this place. Yeah, I'm still, um, I'm still yet to to get my wings over in uh, over in the US. I've done quite a fair bit of traveling, but the US is uh, is one place I've not been yet. But I, me and my girlfriend are hoping to uh, travel over to the West Coast at some point, hopefully this year, depending on uh, depending on what happens in the world. But yeah, as if, in case, um, well, people probably won't be aware. I, I, Dan and I met at Project Controls Expo. Um, just gone recently I think it was November time wasn't it mm -hmm. in, um, it was. in London 2021 and um, and we spoke albeit briefly about the podcast and um, and yeah here we are today so um, I know that that, that that conference was great because it was the first time in gosh two years that uh, you know we'd all interacted and, and got back together in person again so uh, that was exactly. a real milestone real milestone conference exactly yeah i know it was a pleasure it was a pleasure but um but yeah thanks so much for that that walk through dan as everybody can hear you've had a um a brilliant and an illustrious career and i think for me what's um really um i don't think striking is the right word but especially from listening to other podcasts it's really palpable how passionate you are about project management and how it's um and how much it means to you so i guess from my perspective what has been your underlying motivation and, and vision throughout your career and obviously the development of these softwares, different different software over the years? Yeah, really good question, Pat. So, 
you know, here we are in 2022 and, you know, again, almost without exception, every major capital investment project overruns both with regards to, to, to time and also budget or cost. Yeah. And, you know, everybody still blames poor execution while construction overran or, or commissioning took longer than planned. And honestly, I've always had the, the very strong belief that, you know, if, if you call those overruns, if you think of those as project failure, project failure really isn't due to poor execution. Execution is what it is. Yeah. There is a, there's a perception that execution has overrun because we're comparing the execution to something. And normally we compare what we're actually doing with a plan or a forecast. Well, if our forecast is overly aggressive, overly optimistic, uh, doesn't account for external factors, and I know we're gonna get into risk in a lot more detail, then at the end of the day, it's not poor execution, it's poor planning. So I've always had the very passionate belief that as an industry, we need to do a better job of more accurately planning, forecasting, making those plans more achievable. It's okay to account for the bad stuff during planning. You know, again, you know, I look at a, 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 a Microsoft project or a Primavera schedule, you know, most scheduling tools are based on a 50 year old method called CPM or critical path methodology. A CPM schedule will only be achieved if every single activity in that schedule isn't late. In other words, is executed on time. Yeah. Well, that's ridiculous. The chance of not having knock-on effect, even through an A goes to B goes to C, is very, very low. So imagine a schedule with hundreds of thousand activities. You haven't got a hope in hell of actually coming in on time. Conversely, if we start to account for and embed you know, some of the bad stuff, you know, external risk events, perhaps scope isn't fully defined, um, things like that, then we start to move into a world where we're actually forecasting a more achievable, a more realistic plan. And I think, you know, really that's where risk analysis, risk-adjusted schedules, risk-adjusted cost estimates have played an important role, again, because they start to take into account you could call it the bad stuff. I would call it the realistic stuff that yeah. most likely is going to happen during execution. Um, so I think for me, you know, it, it, it's anything we can do to improve the science of forecasting and planning is a very good thing. And honestly, that's been my, my motivation and, and I get super excited about it. <laughs> well, it's amazing. I could tell Dan. And I think in my um, early tenure in risk management, um, I must sound like a broken record. I say this every podcast, but she's coming up to 18 months and um, it was only sort of in um, starting to do the podcast and having these sort of conversations with people that I realized in what um, dire straits the statistics were in terms of successful projects and delivered on time and to budget. And like I say, we'll get more into into the detail in this in this episode as well. But it's interesting to see that there's more things at play than just prima facie poor planning and and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, no, I'm I'm sure we'll we'll dive into that shortly. But as hopefully as everyone will have seen from the the title of the episode, so today we'll be chatting about the evolution of project risk assessment techniques over the past ten years and and what's next really. So. I think it's fair to say there aren't many better qualified people that I could get stuck into this topic with. Um, so in simple terms, Dan, just to kick us off um, and I suppose get the ball rolling, please could you define for us risk management in the context of CapEx projects? Okay, so, well, don't hang up on me, um, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm actually going to say no because okay. I think risk management should have been coined confidence management. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do, whether it's, you know, if, it, if it's something as simple as just identifying risks, and we put them in Excel and we call it a risk register, or at the other end of the spectrum, we're doing some fancy advanced you know, Monte Carlo simulation with correlation and all sorts of uh, bells and whistles, irrespective of the approach we're using, we're ultimately trying to increase our confidence in this thing called a, a forecast. And so... You know, for me, I think risk management is really more about confidence management. And I think it, it's, it's trying to help defend the cost and schedule forecast that 
we as a project, whether we're the owner organization or the, the contractor responsible for actually doing the work, we're, we're trying to bring confidence and certainty to, to the table in, in that forecast. So, you know, if, if I get off my high horse beyond the sort of risk versus confidence management uh, thing, I think, um, you know, confidence or risk management really, it, it's a two-pronged attack. I think step one is, first of all, you've got to identify your exposure. And again, whether that's a, an advanced quantitative analysis or a more simplistic, just qualitative identification, both are okay. Um, so, you know, step one is, is, is figuring out what your exposure is. I think more importantly, though, step two is then deciding or determining what the heck to do about that exposure. You know, when I facilitate a risk workshop and we do our, our fancy modeling and we come back with, okay, your 24 month project, um, you know, is most likely to take 36 months. You know, my, my question, I, I sort of ask a rhetor rhetorical question and say, well, so what? Well, the so what is if 36 months is okay, then you don't need to respond to that risk exposure. So really for me, it, it's all about proactively determining, okay, if our risk adjusted forecast is X, then what are we willing to invest and spend in terms of risk reduction and, and risk mitigation in order to achieve a shorter, often uh, cheaper uh, forecast, if that makes sense. So I think it's it's identification, which is important, and quantification, but then more importantly, it's all about proactively determining what the heck to do about that risk exposure. And in some cases, Pat, it's interesting, you know, I've worked on many, many projects where the cost of mitigating risk simply isn't worth it. Um, and, and I find that very, very fascinating, actually, to the point where in, in some instances, we've modeled scenarios where the best way to reduce schedule overrun, and you're going to think I'm crazy here, but the best way to reduce schedule overrun is actually to delay some aspects of the schedule so that you introduce float into sequential segments rather than butting everything up and trying to do as early as possible. Introducing float into a schedule, I think, is very, very important. And um, again, I, you know, I, I, I always try and break things into sort of I call them baby chunks, right? And, and for me, you know, I think of a um, a schedule comprising or a forecast is is a, is a schedule with multiple paths leading to the finish, and some paths carry float. And typically, float is your friend because. Um, float is in, in, in non-technical terms, it's something that you can consume without impacting the rest of the project. Now, how does that relate to risk? Well, risk eats float. So risk consumes float. Okay, well, if risk consumes float, then this concept of contingency, which is your risk, risk reduction, um, contingency absorbs risk. So you've got contingency, which is mopping up risk, which is a good thing. And then yeah. risk is consuming float, which is a bad thing. And it's all about balancing balancing the two. There's no point having an incredibly expensive, onerous contingency plan if the risk isn't actually eating sufficient float to make you late. So it's all about the balance between risk and float. No, that's that's fascinating, Dan. I think um, in, the, in the recent months, I've really been dialing in on my... Uh on my skills in sort of quantitative risk uh, analysis and, and the software and stuff like that. So especially in terms of like planning and, and project fundamentals as well. So I think six months ago, I probably would have been a bit lost in this conversation, but I'm, it's um, for my own learning as well. I think it's uh, really refreshing for me that I, I'd sort of really understand the points that you're making. And, um, and I think they're really quite poignant as well. Another thing that I picked up on is that you said that you said that you like to refer to baby baby chunks my uh, baby my chunks yep. yeah yeah <laughs> my mentor Paul Sutcliffe he um he always refers to things in bite-sized chunks as well I think it's something that's quite common that I've, I've spoken to people on the podcast you, you know it's interesting Pat again in, in the early years when we were developing risk software you know we would we would get uh input and advice from you know these so-called highly intellectual risk consultants and, and what I realized over the years was people don't like complicated Yep. They, they're like simple, you know, we use a, we use a device today, a chunk of silicon that, that used to be called a phone that doesn't, 
doesn't even have any buttons. I mean, who would have thought a telephone without buttons? And, and it's great. It's so simple. And, and again, I think, you know, as, a, as an industry, we're getting better at simplifying complex. You know, as a risk analyst, I shouldn't have to you know, read a user manual or look up in a help file um, in order to be able to drive a piece of risk software. So, so the more that we can do to make um, you know, the, these tools not just more appealing, but more usable by the masses, I think is a, is a very good thing. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think that was one of my concerns when I first sort of saw these um, these products and this software and stuff. I'd sort of see it in the first instance. And I've my own admission. I've said in previous podcasts, I've never really been a numbers guy. It's never been my strength. However, I found the usability of of these products, and I thought and I did think that products ten years ago might have been a little bit simpler to use, just because. Um, technology has evolved, but I think it's gone the opposite way. Well, obviously, I wasn't in risk 10 years ago. I was 17, <laughs> I was 17 10 years ago. Um, but I think it's a testament to the to the software and the products. If um, a layman or if I can understand it pretty soon off the bat, then, um, then I think that can only be a good thing. It, it, it's funny, Pat. You know, when, when I look at some of the, uh, the early tools we developed, um, in order for the software to, to do its analysis, we would ask the end user, things like three-point estimates you know is it a triangular distribution or a uniform distribution we would ask about correlation we we would expose the user user to um things like merge bias and central limit theorem and looking back now i cringe you know because a, a project controls team member doesn't give a hoot about any of that the project controls team member wants to understand how to better their project and so you know you, you can um, protect the audience from all of that complexity behind the scenes the computer still needs to take into account all of those things but you know making these these project controls software packages relevant to the end user for me is something that again I, you know I'm, I'm really focused on and, and you know if, if anyone starts off a product demo to me these days touting how clever and complicated it is I normally switch off very, very quickly because they've yeah. got it completely back. They've got it completely backwards. No, I completely agree. I think um, there's all these, like you say, all these scary words like correlation and ketosis and <laughs> all this central limit theorem. When I was uh, first sitting down and learning the um, the foundations of it, and like I said, the the partners optimizer said, "Oh, it's like it's a fancy word for this, or it's a fancy word for this." And you're like, "All right, is so it? it's a fancy word for stuff in a hierarchy cancelling each other out." Exactly, exactly. And then I, it sort of begged the question, I was like, does anybody actually use these words? Like other than when it's on the screen in front of you and if you might be trying to look a bit clever or something, like if, you, if you're delivering this information high level to somebody who wants to know X, Y, and Z, then what is the point? And I think, you've, I think it's a really good point, Dan, that um, we don't like complicated. And um, as just to reiterate, I think the fact that I was able to sort of get my head around it quite quite quickly is a bit of a testament to how far it's come. Yep. Excellent. So um, as we've touched on, Dan, I think obviously you, you, many of your products have, have been and are being used around the world. Um, what do you think has been their biggest impact? I know we've probably touched on a couple of things there in terms of simplifying things and, and prioritizing the end user, but is there anything else that springs to mind? Yeah, so, so without sort of sounding uh, repetitive, because I think we just spent the last few minutes, you know, emphasizing this concept of, of making complex uh, simple. Um, really, I think, I think probably the biggest impact beyond you know, literally improving the, our ability to forecast has, has been the fact that we, we've opened up the science of scheduling um, and sort of demystified it, I think, in, in many ways and, and tied to that, Today, when an organization develops a schedule or a forecast, um, there is a lot more emphasis around due diligence, making sure that it's structurally sound. Have we done our, our risk analysis? Have we gained consensus from the project team? You know, again, in the old days, it used to be a planner or scheduler sitting in isolation and, and planning in, in sort of a, what I call a silo environment. Yeah, I think quite simply just the fact that there, there is there's multiple checks and balances now, and more collaboration on on building that uh, building that forecast is probably the biggest the biggest benefit. 
amazing. And, and so leading on from that, Dan, in, in all your years of delivering this risk software, what would you say have been your biggest lessons that you've learned and, and where, if at all, any of the products have fallen short? Oh, I don't want to talk about where the products have fallen short. <laughs> That's all why right. I did if so, at all. <laughs> um, all right. So I think it's very important. And again, you, you're going to think I, I, I sound very simple, but I think just believing in what you believe is, is really key. Um, you know, don't be swayed by, you know, I, I shared with you my experience as, as a young 20 something when my boss said, well, what if it doesn't work? Well, well, you know, don't worry about that. You know, put your, put your efforts into um, further ensuring that a concept will work. Um, I think commercially, don't worry about the competition. Um, you know, again, I think a lot of organizations spend way too much time looking around, worrying what others are doing. You know, if you believe in what it is you're building and you believe in the value that people are getting out of your product, then that's very healthy. Um, you know, don't, don't spend your time trying to either catch up with or, or, or just worry about the competition. That, that, that's not very useful. And then this is getting a bit more into sort of the weeds of, of building products and solutions. Um, and, and you may laugh at this one, but default to no. So, so what I mean by that is, you know, as, you, as you're building a, anything, a widget, a software product, a piece of hardware, typically you're going to get lots of ideas and input from people. And I think it's important to be careful that you don't say yes to everybody. Otherwise, you don't really end up, you, you don't know what you end up building, if that makes sense. You end up yeah, building of sort of a, a, mas a master of nothing. Um, and so I think probably the biggest lesson repeatedly that I've learned in the last 20 years is if somebody asks for a bell or a whistle or a feature in a software product, really challenge them on, well, why, why are you asking for that? And is there a better way of doing it? Or is there another way that's already, you know, you can already, already use within the product? So, you know, defaulting to no, or it's okay to, to at least start at no, and then move to a yes, um, so, such that the vision of what it is you're building continues to be as, as straight in, or, or sort of in as, as straight line as possible. Um, now you asked, like, I think the, the second part of your question was, okay, um, where, where have some of our products fallen short? I think, um, you know, I mentioned the, the, the basis product, which was an, an AI planning assistant. And again, from a technical and software technology perspective, it was brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic, but it was definitely a very large leap for the industry to to absorb and consume because there was a really there was a leap of faith involved in that product whereby yeah. users had to start trusting the computer. Um, you know, it, it was it was interesting in that you know our previous solutions required a human or humans to feed information into the computer. So typically through a mouse or a keyboard, the user would enter information into the computer, the computer would do a little calculation and then provide an answer back. Well, with, with the AI tool, it was the first time where actually we sort of turned it on its head where the computer was driving that interaction and that relationship. The computer would reach out to the human and give guidance. And, and that actually was quite unnerving for many of our early adopters. And so I think with hindsight, we should have done a better job of almost making the computer a little bit more humble in its suggestions. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, that, so that was really sort of a, a bleeding edge versus a, a cutting edge uh, lesson learned, I think, on, on that one. Again, you know, nothing to do with the software. The software was fantastic. It was more of a, um, a, an adoption challenge um, so it was more of a, a soft factor than a, than a yeah. technical factor. Excellent. No, that's, that's really interesting, Dan. I think, um, touch on a couple of things that you mentioned earlier about the software, um, default to no, I think 
that's a really good piece of advice just for all walks of life, trying to be all things to all people, especially as a rich professional is, um, well, isn't, isn't advantageous in, by any means. Just another question I had. So something that you mentioned earlier in terms of lesson learned when you said, I guess you would call it market research when you were sort of reaching out to these, like you say, these evangelists, risk specialists mm-hmm. for, for feedback. Is that something that you reined in a little bit as, as you've gone through more products and more software and you've sort of reached out a little bit more to laymen, not necessarily laymen, sorry, but not necessarily these specialist jargon loving risk specialist if that makes sure. sense it, it does so it, it's um it's a tough balance because you know obviously experts whatever their field you, you want to try and garner and, and and foster that expertise and use that in the solution that you're building but at the same time i've never really believed in building something for just a, a niche audience you know yeah, for me if we can if, if we can broaden the goodness of forecasting and planning job well done so i think it's i think it's a a happy medium i I would say that over the years some of those very very high-end domain experts um again this is a human factor not a technical factor sometimes like to hide behind the complexity of their specialist subject if that makes sense makes perfect sense um, yeah and, and and again we, we've always tried to break down those barriers because at the end of the day nothing is really that complicated nothing is is you know i've always had the the, the belief that everything is fixable and uh, you can model anything with mathematics if, if you try hard enough it's really not that difficult and so you know i think leveraging expertise is hugely valuable um but testing and validating that expertise that you've then modeled in a computer package with you call it the layperson with, with really the bigger audience that that are going to use your solution i think is actually more more valuable that's really interesting and um i uh, i think that must be quite a difficult <laughs> happy medium to, to balance especially in the uh, in the early stages but um but no that's really interesting thanks dan um so just moving on to artificial intelligence then i know we've touched on it a couple of um, a couple of times there so um as luck would have it one of the first episodes in season one i'm not sure if anyone listening has had the opportunity to listen was with um a couple of gentlemen called deepak mystery and richard bendor jones and that was all around data analytics and its relationship with risk management and we explored sort of a number of themes um including how this innovative tech is going to massively increase our productivity like the seamless integration of risk management into the tools that project practitioners use and there was also some albeit tongue-in-cheek themes we explored as potential concerns that the industry might have about artificial intelligence sort of replacing risk managers or at least partly making our roles obsolete so in your opinion Dan apologies that was slightly long-winded question but what do you see the impact of AI in this space and, and in our profession and do you think there's any weight to any of the things that I mentioned earlier? Okay, so let, let's let's just briefly touch on sort of the um, my humble take on the definition of AI. So um, I actually look at artificial intelligence as more augmented intelligence. So you can still okay. use the AI acronym using my thinking. You know, if if AI is a computer's ability to emulate a human thought process and draw inference, things like that then I, I really do look at it as augmented rather than okay. artificial because it's not artificial because it's real yeah. and you know it's augmenting human expertise. Now, in, in the world of uh, project management, scheduling risk, risk management, I think one of the hardest challenges for a human is mining through vast quantities of data. And it's even harder in the world of scheduling in that there isn't a standard definition or format for modeling stuff. And what I mean by that, you know, in the most simplistic terms, if, if I'm looking at a construction project and I have engineering, procurement, construction stuff in sequence, I may, know, I may go to another organization where engineering is called design, procurement is called purchasing, and construction is called execution. Now, as a human, I'm able to very quickly do that pattern matching and, and cross the chasm between design is actually analogous to engineering. Getting a computer to infer the fact that those two definitions or those two 
disciplines or domains are really the same thing is incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, but having said that, with the advent of, of, of or the evolution of, of AI in recent years, I think we're getting very close to where computers can actually make or draw useful comparisons in this world of non-structured, non-structured data. Um, okay, so how's that going to help us in, in the world of risk management? Again, I think you know anything we can do to look at or to leverage historical patterns to help predict the future has to be without question valuable. Yeah. And again, you know, as a human expert, I can look back and 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 recall previous projects I've worked on and say, well, on a project five years ago, these were the top five risks. I think we should consider those in our project. Well, as time goes on and, and, and uh, you know, projects are obviously very, very complex, it's quite hard for humans to draw upon that historical information in an efficient manner. But computers are really good at tasks that humans find tedious. Yeah. So let, let's leverage the computer through this augmented intelligence technique uh, for mining that historical information, looking at patterns and coming back with, you know, whether it's suggestions for benchmarks or uh, recommendations with regards to risks or even opportunities that should be considered. So I am all in favor of AI or augmented intelligence to assist our industry. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical of some of the technical solutions today that are almost looking for a problem to solve with AI. I think that's very backwards. You know, I think our focus should still be on de-risking capital investments and, and, and improving forecasting. But let's use AI in a useful, useful manner. And I think we're still trying to figure that. I think we're absolutely still trying to figure figure that out. Do you think, do you feel that we're we're far away from from the answer to that question, because, like I say, I know um, in the in the podcast I mentioned I mentioned previously, it was very much geared towards like the computer can almost save the project professional, the risk professional, a huge amount of time in, like you say, in in cleansing and not necessarily cleansing, but going through all this data, and um, and yeah, so I, I'd be interested to hear just how close you think we are to to, to that sort of. Benefit. I think I think we're already there. We're just grappling with this incredibly powerful utility that we're not quite sure what to do with yet. Yes. And and um, so I need to be a little bit careful here because, and I'm going to say <laughs> this with a smile because um, we're actually working on a, a very exciting new uh, venture to further improve the science of, of scheduling. And so you know, I look at CPM scheduling. And historically, this calculation has helped us determine what we call the critical path or near critical paths through a schedule. So yeah. if I said to you, okay, there's 10,000 activities in my schedule and Microsoft Project is showing you that this is the, the critical path, is that, is that interesting to you? And, and in some ways, yes, but I think I've come to the realization in recent years it's sort of interesting but irrelevant because wouldn't you as a as a domain expert then look at that critical path and go well how achievable is the path do we have sufficient resources are there bottlenecks on that critical path the critical path is just a path with no float yeah and 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 i'm not sure that it's that useful i think the real value and insight is okay let's analyze the characteristics of that either single critical path or, or multiple near critical paths. And let's look at you know, what, what are the factors that are going to challenge our ability to execute those paths. And for me, that's really exciting because to date, we as human experts have applied our knowledge and experience to then look at those focused paths. Well, again, if a computer could assist in determining those characteristics, it's almost like a DNA analysis, then that's going to be such a massive step forward for us as, as an industry. Because again, computers are great at mining huge volumes of, of unstructured or historically structured, but now unstructured data. If by mining that information, we can 
get a much better sense of the characteristics of those driving paths, then that gives us a, a much better fighting chance of de-risking them. So, so it's indirectly tied to risk analysis. Yeah. Um, so, so I think we're I think we're already there. That was a very long-winded way of saying we're, we're there. <laughs> um, you know, I think we're. Uh, it, it, it's probably analogous to the early two thousands with uh, with internet technology. You know, there was a huge rush to to bring web-based products to market. You know, moving away from traditional uh, Windows thick client uh, applications. There were no standards protocols. Um, Security was was pretty minimal, um, so I think we're in the wild west phase. Is is uh, how I see it right now, but yeah. uh, we're definitely we're definitely in it. We're not we're not uh, you know it's not something in the future. It, it's here. I just think uh, there's a lot of normalization to be done. Amazing. No, I said this in previous episodes that it'd be interesting um, to come. I'm only 27 now, so I've, I've still got a long stint left in the, uh, in the profession, but, um, come back to these sort of episodes in, in a couple of decades and see where we're at compared to where we were, where we were, when we were having these conversations. It'd be, uh, be fascinating to see, but yeah, just moving on Dan. So given how far the technology has come then in the past decade, um, at least, why does project success in inverted commas, in your opinion, continue to have such a poor track record? I mean, is this a reflection of the lack of inroads in the software or are we not using it to its maximum potential or do you think it's indicative of unreasonably optimistic project scope? It's probably a little, a little bit of all of, of the above as you just described. I think we've made great strides in improving the science of planning and forecasting, um, but we haven't solved it. And, and so I think there's still a lot more to be, to be done. You know, you could argue that this isn't a, a challenge that can just be resolved and then we're finished. You know, yeah. maybe it's one of those things where we get incrementally better, we get closer and closer, but we never, we never get there. And I think that's okay as well. You know, there's this uh, concept that I've, I've been noodling on um, that's, I guess it's sort of execution resilience. You know, if we think of what we've done to date in the world of planning and scheduling, we've made, like, like I said, we've made great inroads, but at the end of the day, there's only so much you can predict in the future. Now, during execution, there's inevitably going to be external factors that uh, either jeopardize or in some cases improve our execution performance. Um, and so, you know, this concept of execution resilience, how, how resistant is our forecast to falling over due to changes in execution? And I think there's a lot of work still to be done there. No, one, no one's really looked at um, sensitivity of our forecast in execution. I think the other thing is, you know, you pick up a, a project management textbook and, and, and almost without exception, you know, the introductory paragraph talks about the plan the work, then work the plan. Well, I think it's rubbish. I think it's just plain wrong because it's not sequential because even, even in execution, you should be replanning, replanning, replanning all the way through to, to final completion. Um, so, you know, I think the, I think that the, the boundary between planning and execution um, should be, should be eliminated. And I think planning should be seen as something that's carried out and should be carried out throughout the whole project life cycle. Fascinating. No, that's um, that's that's really interesting. Thanks, Dan, and um, amazing. So, lastly, then, Dan, and I know this is probably quite a broad one, um, but just to answer the title of the episode, what is next? Where do you see the risk industry going? And I know we've probably touched on this throughout the episode, but I guess we can use this as a as a nice little sounding piece to conclude and uh, and wrap it up nicely. Gosh, so you want me to uh, forecast the future of? The science of forecasting the future. <laughs> I do indeed. Good luck. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, I think it, I think the, the you know there's not going to be some magical uh, monumental stair step improvement. I, I think it's all about um, uh, incremental steps forward. I think to date our uh, approaches, while they've been sound and, and fairly well proven, have relied very heavily on mathematical techniques. You know, a traditional Risk analysis uses 
you know, a Monte Carlo simulation, which is sort of a brute force effort to just generate lots and lots of scenarios, looking at uh, various inputs and then, and then looking at the distribution of those outputs. I think that's valuable. I think where we're moving towards though is, well, we're really moving away from these models being all about data and more towards knowledge. Um, and, and for me, the difference between data and knowledge is understanding. You know, data is just a set of numbers. You know, P75 in a schedule is, is, is a data. Having knowledge around that P75 as to what's driving it, how can we improve upon it, things like that. Um, so, so I think it's, it's, it's almost as if we're moving more towards the softer things in, in our space, you know, the human expertise or digitizing that human expertise um, and blending that with what has been to date sort of largely an algorithmic approach to, to risk. And I, I think that's a good thing because again, at the end of the day, humans, when presented with a number, typically then the next question is, well, where did that number come from? Is it defendable? Why is that number the number that it is? And the tools haven't got there yet. Today, the, the tools just say, hey, your P75 is such and such, and, and these are the top seven risks. Um, adding that layer of understanding and understanding context, I think is, is gonna be much more valuable because it's gonna help then the project team defend the risk adjusted forecasts that they come up with. I think also, you know, the more we can learn from prior projects, sort of like a, almost like a feedback loop, Pat, where, you know, moving away from almost arbitrarily plugging in values into a risk model to, to, to run the simulation or, or the analysis, using historical information. Again, for me, it, it's feeding knowledge into a model versus just raw numbers or data, because then that drives understanding on the output side. No, exactly. I think um, in my early learning around risk modeling and what makes a good risk modeler, it was all very much drilled as me, context is king. You could teach a monkey how to press the buttons and spit a model out and then give it to a client. But it's actually understanding the context, being able to break that down and, and translate that in a way that's actually understandable is, um, is what's been drilled into me. That's the difference between somebody who cranks the handle and someone who's a genuine risk modeler who looks to get genuine uh, value out of it. Yeah, I, I think it's under, I think you nailed it. I think it's understanding of context beyond just a mathematical model. Exactly. Brilliant. Well, Dan, thanks so much for, uh, for all your, um, your brilliant thoughts and words of wisdom. I'm going to introduce something now that I've, uh, I've not done on any of the other podcasts, but I think it'd be good to start doing. I don't want it to be as a matter of fact as just doing all the all the topic and then and then jumping off. So yeah, I'd be really interested to know what you get up to when you're not building risk solutions. I know uh, Arizona, there must be loads to do in Arizona. I'm pretty sure the Grand Canyon National Park's in Arizona, isn't it? <laughs> there are lots funny, of things to do. Hikes. Lots of hiking, yes. Um, okay, so what do I do when I'm not sitting in front of a computer building uh, software products? Exactly so, right. You're gonna laugh. So I move away from sitting in front of a computer and I go and sit in front of other computers. So what I, <laughs> what I love doing in my spare time, uh, and I've been doing this for many years now, I um, collect and restore antique computers. And, wow. and uh, yeah, very, very old machines. So um, actually all the way back to some of the early cryptography machines. So um, you're probably familiar with things like the German Enigma machine. I'm indeed. Is, Which, that, is uh, that from the um, imitation game? Am I, uh, am the, I thinking of the correct, right Correct, yes, yes. Yeah, and actually um, because of those uh, electromag or electromechanical machines like the Enigma machine that actually uh, accelerated the, the invention of the computer. The computer was actually developed to help uh, crack the, uh, the encryption algorithms that were, were used in those machines. And so I spend uh, as much time as I can hunting down uh, very often broken machines and uh, and then spend time uh, painstakingly restoring and bringing those machines back uh, back to life 
So absolutely love that. Um, what do you do with the machines once they're uh, once they're restored? Do you keep all of them, or do you do you move them on? Or great, great question. A little of both. So um, to my to my uh, to my wife's disgust, the majority <laughs> of the machines end up in uh, a computer museum that I uh, that I curate. Um, but unlike collecting stamps or coins, which are very very small, these uh, these machines are um, very large, very heavy. Um, and also have to be uh, situated in a, in a climate controlled environment as well. So um, that's incredible. It's incredible. I love, I love stuff like that. I'm the exact same. I've got some really um, eccentric, shall we say, extracurricular hobbies, um, <laughs> but I'll save that for another episode. Um, but amazing. Thanks so much, Dan. Just last couple of bits from me. So um, as I do with all my guests, I think it's really good and really poignant um, part of the podcast for anybody listening to, to myself who's at the start of the career. If you could give yourself a piece of advice at, when you're at the start of your career that you know now that you didn't know then, what would that piece of advice be? My goodness. Um, believe in what you believe and, and don't worry about what others say, I think is uh, if I'd have been more confident in that statement 20 years ago, I think I, yeah, probably would have been more more successful but uh, yeah I think you know it's okay to have sleepless nights and uh, worry about things but um, again if, if you believe in in a solution then everything's buildable everything's fixable and uh, yeah I think it's as simple as that love that cheers Dan and then very last one uh, very last point sorry if anybody off the back of the uh, the conversation we've had today wants to get in touch um about anything any of the solutions you've developed or just anything we've talked about on the podcast what would be the best way to get in touch sure so uh either hunt me down on linkedin or uh, my website is pm focus so pm project management focus.com and um you can easily contact me uh, through that so uh, yeah and we'd love Love to hear from uh, anyone that's been uh, listening today. And uh, yeah, it'd be great to continue the discussions on on a wonderful uh, science of project scheduling. <laughs> or if anybody wants to get in touch, who also shares a similar passion in restoring old uh, computers and machines, <laughs> <laughs> fire down a message. But um, but no, Dan, thanks so much. And sorry, just uh, on that, I'll put a link to Dan's website in the uh, in the podcast notes as well. Um, but Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you on. I really, really do appreciate you um, you spending some time with us to to talk about that today. So um, so yeah, really do appreciate it, Dan. Thank you. No, likewise, and apologies for uh, the, the uh, numerous interruptions from uh, from the family dog. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm moving an hour and about whether to edit them out or not, but uh, we'll see how we go. <laughs> Cheers, Dan. Take right, it easy. Good stuff. Thank All you. The best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Riskologists, be sure to follow Optimize on all of our social media channels where you can subscribe to this podcast and be notified of every episode so you don't miss a thing. Please like, share and leave reviews to help support us and increase our reach within the wider risk community. And join us next time, where we'll be chatting with another leading figure in the world of risk. Until then, thanks a lot for listening and take it easy.